What are the creeds? Are they helpful for us now? Well, today on the Emmaus Institute of Disciple Making podcast, we're going to be hearing from Rick Evans as he begins his series over the creeds and their relevance for us as Christians today. There we go. All right. Um, I, I was thinking when the class was going to be put together, I thought we're going to have essentially four, maybe more types, and some of you already touched on that. You have people who may be new to the faith or a group in churches that creeds were never even mentioned. So you have that. You're kind of indifferent, kind of like just didn't know anything about them and, huh, you know, check out. May have heard of, heard of them but didn't know much. Then you have the group of people who may have come from churches that were almost anti-creed. They, you know, they were a little too much. It made them think of just like Roman Catholicism, and they were very anti-Roman Catholicism. And their their thinking was no creeds, but scripture, kind of thing. Which, and as we go through this class, you'll kind of see the faulty thinking that is. Um, then you had those who grew up, and and you two kind of touched on this a little bit, in traditions that taught had the creeds. But sometimes you would, and, and I grew up this way. You would say them, and you just got used to saying them, but you didn't quite really appreciate them as much as you could. And then we may have some in here and um, who grew up knowing the creeds, loving the creeds, and just want to dive in even more. So you, you kind of, and there may be other types here as well, but um, the creeds are a, a great, great um, thing to dive into in many ways, and we're going to talk about that in here in just a minute. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to hand these out. And these are, if you need pens, I'm not, I, I'm going to give you all notes each week, but I tried not to give you tons of notes because we are dealing with history and theology and a ton of it. And so we're going to try to be streamlined and I gave you all the notes, you would have hundreds of pages worth of notes. <laughs> so some of you are going to touch on, oh, that's interesting. And I, I really did this more where you could write down stuff. I gave you some key points, including when we get to the specific creeds, that creed will be written out. But it's more so you guys can just write out stuff if you want to and take notes and that kind of thing. Uh, don't feel like you have to take notes if you don't want to, but some things may <laughs> click with some people more than others um, in different ways, like you know, some may be diving into theology, others into the history, you know, or some both, you know, whatever it is. You know, these, these hopefully will help. But they are notes, and they are kind of an outline of how we're going to go. So you can just take one and pass it around. I do have pens if you need pens. So just let me know. I think we're going to start. It's just the mindset I hope we have going into this. So I put down some thoughts about <laughs> keep in mind. First thing is, it's funny, I think Anson mentioned it yesterday, just out of coincidence. Then I saw something else written about a similar thought by Dallas Willard this morning. We're not in here just for head knowledge. If you're in here for the head knowledge, that's great. Don't leave. We really want to hopefully apply it and go deeper in our love for Christ, our love for God, love for others. Um, so it, it is good for the head. It's great to know, but it's also something we can dive into our heart and get more out of it. Um, John 4 talks about, but the hour is coming and that is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit 
And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And we also want to do this out of love. Um, Second John says, I, greatly re I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, again truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, he's talking to the church, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is, this is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning, which is key, just as you have heard it from the beginning, which is something we're going to be talking about here is the tradition. And this is how the creeds came about, is this passing along. So he's, here's John's mentioning that in there. As you've heard from the beginning, what's been taught to you that we're passing along um, so that you would walk in it. And Ephesians says, instead of speaking, instead, speaking the truth in love, again, truth, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And of course, he's talking to the church, but we want to mature through that knowledge and grow in all aspects of our faith. Um, Alistair McGrath, um, I don't know if anybody, know, anybody knows, familiar with him. He's, uh, he's one of those people like, could you not just finish one element of amazing? He was a doctor of microbiology in England, maybe at Oxford or Cambridge or anything. He was an atheist, came to the faith. So of course he dives in is now an outstanding theolo world theologian. So he's, he's very interesting because he knows science obviously and he knows theology. So he'll go and debate the atheists, you know, and he's just, he's amazing. He's also a great historian. He just did a, a book on um, C.S. Lewis. So he's one of those. Anyway, he says in this, creedal statements are secondary to the primary act of trust and commitment. And we are trust in Christ is what we're really after. And, and our love for the creeds and all that comes from that, it comes from that love and that interest to follow, to follow God. Um, so I want us to keep in that in mind. The second thing I want us to keep in mind, who we are in this story. We're going to be studying history, but it impacts us now too. Um, we are part of that church that was, got this tradition passed along, um, that scripture was written for, not to, but for. Um, and we, we want to keep that in mind that we're going to apply ourselves in here. We're in, this is not just some history class of, about Julius Caesar. This is an ongoing part of, as Christians, as part of a master, our tradition and where we come from and our family. If, if you, any of you have done the family genetic lines, you know, he's kind of like, well, this is really interesting. And I kind of understand myself a little better and where my family is. And this is so much more than that because this is an act of love, act of growing in, in Christ type thing. So we want to fully accept that. Um, Tim Keller, the, I may know Tim, Tim, Tim Keller, you know Tim Keller, because you were at the class. Um, we did a summer series class last year in the summer about, by a Bible study by Tim Keller. And um, as many of you know, he's a pastor in New York City, um, redeemer and church planter and brilliant mind. He, he wrote, to, Try these questions out on the glory and majesty of God, the wisdom and sovereignty of God, the love and mercy of God. Spend time thinking, and you'll begin to see that many of our most personal and practical problems are doctrinal ones. Either we don't grasp the truth, or we don't connect it to our lives 
so that it creates soundness or spiritual health in us. That's, it's wonderful. It's more than head knowledge. It's more than head knowledge. Another thing we're going to learn at, learn about here is um, the idea of we're going to be studying a lot of the early, we're going to be studying the Bible writers, and we're going to be studying the early church fathers, especially. And often today, fortunately that's changing, I think, in the last 20 years or so, there used to be the mindset of, oh, it's old, we know better now. But people like C.S. Lewis, um, Chesterton, a lot of those people came along and said, and they called it chronological snobbery. And their idea was, no, we actually, those guys, early people, they really did know. And you may, who spoke of um, the smart people that came before us? I think it was you, Suzanne. <coughs> that was a great line, because that's, we, I think it was C.S. Lewis says, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And we're gonna be studying some of these giants. And it's amazing their brilliance and what they were had to deal with and how they thought through this stuff and our the faith really solidified because of their their thinking, their love, their thought process and how they shared that. So that's gonna be something. Next thing I wanna say, and this is hard for many to hear, but it's very true. It's, this whole process is a little complicated. The Bible didn't fall out of the sky, as some say, like a magic book in one piece. didn't just show up like this. It came together through a process. We're going to be looking at that process a little bit and the creeds in the same way. The creeds, of course, are focusing their light back on Scripture, um, and we're going to study that. But many think, oh, I thought the creeds just, it dawned on them and they had the creeds. We're going to work through that process, how that came about, how Scripture a little bit came about. And that's how God works. He didn't pick Rome or Athens to be all of a sudden the shining star, take over the world, Christianity's established, good, we're out. He chose the backward, backwoods nation of Israel. He actually told an took an individual, said, it's going to be built on your shoulders. The family gets generations later sent to Egypt, and as we're learning right now, as we're studying on Sunday mornings, then they become, it's a, it was messy. That's how God, God works in the messy. Perhaps a no, no better example is Jesus. Jesus didn't show up, show up on the white horse with the sword saying, I'm here, kingdom's established, we're all good. He shows up again, small little town, as a baby, you know, in a manger with the smelling animals, God works in the messy, and it's really cool because that, that we can appreciate that. It, it's it's complicated, but it's cool, and it, that's how He does it. And this process is going to be a little, maybe a little different than some of you thought, but it's how God works. That's how He does it, and and we should appreciate that because I think He works that way in all of our lives too. Our lives are a little messy. When we, if if you when you became a Christian. All things weren't just right off the bat, nor was it, may have had roads where it wasn't really easy to become a Christian. You know, you made a, took, maybe when you were down in the dumps, you became a Christian, or, you know, just tough road. But that's how God works. And He works in the real life and the practical. These are real people in a real context in history, and that's how God worked out this, this information. Next thing we're going to. Um, I have Psalm 145 here. It says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. 
you know, his ways are not ours. We're just beyond our, our head. Um, next, I want to say, if you have anything you want to share, <coughs> this is informal. This isn't a lecture. We're not having final exams on the third night. <laughs> so there's no term paper. So just, sh you know, if you want to say something, share. Just raise your hand or just spot it out. You know, I'm, those that know me, I'm, I'm pretty low-key about that kind of thing. So, you know, this is kind of the Emmaus way is a little low-key at times. So, um, and this is like that. So um, shout it out. Um, the next thing we're going to learn about is there are such things as essentials. Not everything is an essential. We're going to talk about that a little more here in a little bit. But I'm going to read a little excerpt from a, a scholar named Keith Drury. And he said, um, I discovered that some things are written in pencil. This is how I learned that some things were written in pencil. Going to an amusement park wasn't as important as the, vir as the virgin birth in the bag of beliefs. It was a pencil belief. It was one generation's attempt to resist worldliness, and they wrote it down. He's talking about he grew up in a very strict background, and going to the music park was a no-go. No, you know, obviously, dancing was out. That kind of going to movies was out. That kind of thing. Um, did I abandon the faith when I went to an amusement park or started to go bowling? No. I simply erased some of the previous generation's pencil work. I learned all that stuff I had in one belief bag really had a second category. Some things are written in pencil and can be erased without damaging my soul. He said, in college, I discovered that some things were written in ink. I had bumped into an ink-written doctrine. Inked doctrines are not as easily erased as behavioral pencil writing. Ink, indeed, ink writing cannot be erased at all, but must be blotted out as we write something else beside it. So I used, to, I used to be Calvin's darker ink blot to blot out Arminian theology. And I wrote down in large ink letters all five points of Calvin, Calvin as my doctrine. If those are not familiar, that's John Calvin, and he's talking about Calvin and Arminianism. The irony is he becomes an Arminian. But at this time, he was a Calvinist. I was, I was a theological rebel in the Wesleyan Church, and I intended to correct the denomination's dim-witted doctrine. But he said, but at seminary, I discovered that some things were written in blood. And he said, this is how I found the creeds, really. I didn't know they existed until I was in seminary. I suppose I had heard of them, but I'd never, I'd never heard them. They were never said in my church. They were too high church. I never encountered them in college. We had a revival meetings and testimonies in college. The first time I met the creeds when several faithful professors at Princeton tossed them my way as a rope to a drowning student. Yes, that was Princeton, so that's encouraging. Um, I, had erased, I had erased most of the pencil work I was raised with. I had inked out much of my denomination's doctrine. And now I was facing with reading people who didn't even believe the core issues of the Christian faith. What could I believe? I took hold of the creeds, the Nicene, but especially the Apostles' Creed, and hung on. You know, he says the Nicene, but especially the Apostles. We're going to see other people say, oh, the Nicene, that's the one, you know, that's the one. Don't get hung up on that. Both are important. Credo, I believe. The creed for me was not a pencil work of earlier generations, their preferences or lifestyle convictions. Neither were the creeds written in ink, merely the doctrinal positions of one particular denominations. The creeds were written in blood. They are the life and death issues of the Christian church. I would not die for the doctrine of internal security or entire sanctification. 
hold a knife to my throat and demand I say, could I backslide? Am I eternally secure? And you'll get ever answer, you want me to save my life. Hold that same knife to my throat and demand, Christ was not div divine and I will refuse. At Princeton, under the mentorship of several godly professors, I melted down to the core, to the Apostles' Creed. Everything else burned away like wood, hay, and stubble. All I had left were 18 phrases. Then I started rebuilding and found that I did believe more than the core, which is a pretty powerful thing. And we're going to see that there are some essentials of the faith. Secondary issues are important. Some of them are very important but many times they're secondary. Sometimes you hear the secondary and think, oh, that person doesn't think that's important. That's not true. But some are very important. And the Apostle Paul, we're going to see in a little bit here, is going to mention that himself. So I want you all to think of here a little bit, just in your heads, and what are some core things? You don't have to share. You can write it down or whatever you want to do. What are some core things you think are part of the Christian faith? Here at the beginning, think through that, like, Without this, there'd be no Christian faith. The resurrection. Okay. The virgin birth. Okay. The sinlessness. Okay. Mm -hmm. One way to the Father. Okay. This Christ deity. Okay. Those are all. What's that? Our sinfulness. Okay. I hope you're coming again. Okay. With the sufficiency of the cross. Okay. These are all excellent. And all these, or most of these, some of these in great detail, some in little touch on, especially as we get to the creeds, we're going to talk about in a lot. And some we're going to be fleshing out as the church also fleshes some of this out. Because um, some of this wasn't written out as we think it wanted to be written out. And that's another thing we got to remember. We are 21st century North Americans um, in suburban metro Atlanta, a major city in the United States. And how we think things should have been spelled out may have been a little different than first century Jews and the first and second and third generations of the disciples after them that were teaching them how we think, especially as they entered Greek thought and encountered that. And But the truths are there and they're fleshing them out and how do we say these things and what do we do with people who are coming to different conclusions and that kind of thing. And a lot of these things you all just mentioned are what they're going to flesh out. What they're going to flesh out. And we read the Bible with a Western lens and just because that's where we're from, but if you actually think about the, the writing of the Bible itself, it was written by Middle Easterners to Middle Easterners. So many times our perspective is radically different just because we're on a completely different part of the globe. Yep, exactly. Excellent, excellent. Um, so again, here's another question for y'all. Why creeds? Why are creeds important? <coughs> I mean, like you could say, boil it down to the essentials. Okay. Non-negotiables. No, go ahead. I'm <laughs> I just talked. That's, that's fine. I don't go. It helps you to discern between what's true and what's false. Okay. Which is 
Okay. They can also form common ground for when you disagree, but see the core essentials. Okay. So an Arminian and Calvinist can come together over the creed and still find a brother or a sister to discuss things with. That's good. We're going to talk about that well, here in just a minute. There are no stupid answers, but let me say, all your answers so far tonight were excellent. <laughs> but don't don't be shy if you. Help you share the gospel. You know, okay. Helping you know what you believe. Okay, great. Now we're going to touch on the gospel and how we define it in just a little bit tonight too. We're going to pack in a lot tonight, so. But I'm not going to keep you all late. That's one thing. I'm, let me just say this again. I'm one that, in my wife, we, I, we get done on time. Okay, so don't feel like oh they're going to keep it. Now I know everybody's tired. You know it's the start of the week. Um, but we're so. Um, I'm going to go through some reasons here for creeds, and some of you all have touched on a lot of these. Um, Michael Bird. Um, who's a terrific biblical scholar, just wrote a book on the Apostles' Creed that uh, I just read as well. He says, creeds are biblical. Creeds are biblical. That's one reason we like the creeds. They're biblical. He says, creeds carry biblical traditions. And as Jude 3 says, um, you know, says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Again, that passing along of that tradition. Contend for the faith that was passed along to y'all. Kind of like Keith Drury, Drury was just saying, you know, hold a knife to my throat and you say, you know, can I lose my salvation? You know, I'll, I may say whatever you want me to say. You can hold a knife to my throat and say, you know, Jesus was not the Son of God, uh, I, I'm not denying that. And a lot of people who, in the early church, didn't either, and they died. And they did shed their, shed their blood for that truth. Um, as Alistair McGrath says, Christians do more than trust God. They believe definite things about him. Um, Creeds are seemingly summarizing what is stated in Scripture, following the logic of Scripture to explain who God is and what He has done in Jesus Christ. And um, another scholar writes, None of the great creeds of the church were produced independently of what the church thought and said in previous generations. And we're going to go through, tonight especially, we're going to go through a lot of the history leading up to the, the final development of some of the creeds. So... Um, so if we look at the Apostles' Creed, for example, it's one person calls it, maybe Michael Bird says, it's the Christianity's oldest teaching syllabus. It's a great way to look at it. It's a syllabus. It's kind of an outline of, our, of the faith. The Apostles' Creed tells us the main teachings of the faith. The Apostle Creed provides an outline for prayer. And that's another thing. That goes back to that more than head knowledge. 
there's a prayerful aspect to this that I, I want us to share. The Apostles' Creed helps us memorize key biblical points. But as one scholar said, it's not a checklist. Don't treat it as a checklist. It has key biblical points. Another one was, uh, Apostle Creed reminds us that our faith is ancient and universal. One scholar said, we're, we're always after the latest and greatest. However, the Apostle Creed reminds us not to revere what is new and shiny, but rather to cling what is tried and tested. That old-time religion is much better than snazzy sound bites of whatever's trending in theology. It's taught by apostles, affirmed by the ancient church, shared by all major traditions, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, and professed throughout the entire world. The Christian faith is beautifully summed up in the Apostles' Creed, writes Michael Burke. And that universal, that thinking, um, who said, did you mention the, the common core? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, C.S. Lewis, Lewis would call it the Great Hall. Each room had kind of the denominations in different streams, but the hall was everybody's. I've also heard it referred to as the, the village green. Mm. And everybody can come, and everybody's part of the village green, and you have the different tents and, you know, canopies and of different groups, but we're all on the village green together because we share the faith. Um, you're saw Pelican, and I'll get a, either next week or the, well, I'll give you some resources to look up. There's a um, great show called, it was called On Belief, I believe is the name of it. And they interviewed the great historian of Christianity, Yaroslav Pelican. And I've listened to it so many times because it's, it's, it was done years ago. He's passed away several years ago. But um, as a matter of fact, I think he reissued it after his death. But he said, the creed is a very important and cherished way of indicating a universality of the faith across not only t space, but time. To know that in the Philippines this morning, this creed that was recited at Mass, and to know that the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century, and Thomas Aquinas in the 13th, and my late grandfather and grandfather all affirmed this. That's a pretty cool thought. It's a really cool thought that just not us in contemporary United States saying this. This has been said that we have that common core, not across just the net world, but the church throughout time. The Apostles' Creed forces us to think about our faith. It calls us to resist world ideologies. It says we're, we're praising this God, following this Jesus, obeying this Spirit. We're the people who will not bow down to idols of this age or be bullied into changing our beliefs to fit the latest fashion. The creed is not merely a list of quaint things we believe about religion. It is more than that. Our creed is our defiance against the world. So, yeah, we're doing our time here. Um, any thoughts? Anyone want to share anything before we dive into the 
kind of get into the history here. Many people don't realize that their creeds, or I'll, I'll call them pre-creedal, or creeds in development in scripture. They're there. Um, the most famous one in the Old Testament is known as the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, and some of this will be familiar to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Of course, Jesus, and we'll talk about that later, adds a second thing from Leviticus on to this. But this is the Shema. This is what Jews would recite every day. This is what Jesus would recite every day. This is what the Apostle Paul would recite every day. We're going to come back to this concept. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. As we go through this development, what the church is thinking, the Shema is in the background. It's, it's the elephant in the room. And it's going to be, what do we do with this Jesus guy who seems to have this connection with God the Father and we want to worship him? What do we do about the Lord is one? And the church begins to flesh that out. Some in scripture immediately, others through the process, and we're going to talk about that a lot of that tonight. Um, and as they pointed out, the, it's so important that it, they, they go on to say, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Um, Scott McKnight, a, a, a biblical scholar, says, the Shema described the essential elements of Israel's faith in a short summary statement. This is what creeds do, he said. So we have both Paul and Jesus affirming the Shema. Jesus called it, you know, the most important commandment in Mark. You know, he says, this is the most important commandment, says the Shema, and then adds the Leviticus aspect to it. So, we have the Shema, we have the Lord is one, and then Jesus asked this pinnacle question in, in Mark 8, who do you say that I am? If you read if you ever study Mark, that's kind of the pinnacle part of that book, is that question. Jesus said to his disciples, went on uh, to the villages around Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. Well, what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And then it Everything, they, that realization changed everything because the Messiah was not exactly what they had pictured, but it had them have to force them to deal with who is God, what does God look like. Tim Keller says, I've encountered churches that claim we don't teach doctrine, we just preach Jesus. But the moment you ask them, well, who is Jesus and what did he do? The only way to answer that is to begin to lay out doctrine. It's true. That question, who do you say that I am? It's, you, you gotta start spelling out. It's not as simple of, you know, it's, it gets involved. It gets complicated. 
The mo we now go to the New Testament on um, creedal statements in Scripture. The, the briefest one really is Jesus is Lord. Um, Romans 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised her from the dead, you will be saved. Many think this Jesus is Lord phrase was a creed already in development. So Paul's just reciting what he's heard. Um, 1 Corinthians 12. Therefore I want you to know that no one can who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, there it is again, except by the Holy Spirit. Um, and 1 Corinthians written pretty early. So this creedal statement of Jesus is Lord is already, early church, already familiar enough that Paul's writing it with the idea they're familiar with this creed, this early creedal statement. Um, then we get to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to spend a few minutes here on this one. Because one, it's going to look very familiar with those who are familiar with the creeds. And it's going to have gospel implications and that kind of thing. So I'll read it here. I'm going to read um, just through verse 7. Now, brothers and sisters, this is 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Okay, here he goes. For what I received, in other words, the tradition that's been passed along to me, Paul's writing, I passed along to you as first importance. Okay? Right there we have two things. Paul's getting tradition. That's why tradition is important. He's getting it passed along to him. And he's saying there's some things that are of first importance. There's some things that are more important than others in Scripture. And he's going to tell us what those are. But that goes back to the essentials. It's first importance. Okay? And those familiar are somewhat familiar with this. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Of course, that's Peter. After that, he appeared more to, to more than 500 other brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And he goes on and on and on. Um, and later in that chapter, he talks about, if you remember that chapter, the importance of the resurrection. Okay, so this, keep that in mind in this, this whole thing. If you take this passage that Paul's done, one, it, they're going to put it right in the creed, almost verbatim. Um, one, he received the importance of tradition. First importance is this information. If you take this and you expand it out a little bit, let's talk about it a little more and you put it in sermon form, you'll find that you get the sermons in Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 10 that Peter gives. This is almost a summary of his sermon. This is a short and condensed version. Again, clearly it's been around already for times. Again, this is 1 Corinthians. It's an early letter. Early letter. Sometime written between the mid-30s and the mid-40s. Jesus died in the early to mid-30s. So this is, the creed's already 
They're already working on this creed, this pre-creedal statement. Okay? Now, if you take the sermons in Acts that have kind of expanded on this and expand them any further, you get the Gospels themselves. As Scott McKnight says, the Gospels are the Gospel. So you go the other way, shorten that in, the Gospels in a sermon form, you get the sermons in Acts. If you shorten that into a creedal form, you get this. So in many times, you see scholars say, what is the Gospel? Please define the Gospel for us. Many scholars will say, I, I go 1 Corinthians 15, or they'll say maybe Acts 2 or Acts 4, the sermon there. But this is a summary of that. So these creedal statements and the Gospel, we have great overlap here. Great overlap. Who can tell me some of the focus, what sticks out to you about this creedal statement? Especially from verse, from, um, verse 3 through 5. Okay, okay. What else? The phrase according to the scriptures. Okay, that's very important. all this was foretold. Okay. Where? No, I don't mean specifics, but what do you, when you say it's foretold by? I mean by the prophets. Okay. Um, speaking, obviously, words that were given to them by God. Yeah. So, clearly, you don't just gloss over the Old Testament. And the, I'm glad you said the prophets. I had, I had a seminary professor, I heard him say, you know, we get so focused on the kings in the Old Testament, and I go, cool, King David, or the cool, he said, the prophets are the ones we should really be paying attention to. They're the ones speaking, they're the voice of God in the Old Testament. It's, really, it's a great point. So, um, so the Old Testament, of course, he's referring here According to the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament in this passage. So what else? The, the why is there that he died for our sins. Okay. goes back to, you know, that we were sinful. Someone mentioned that earlier this, this evening, that, that important doctrine. But there are still living witnesses. Mm -hmm. A lot of them. Mm -hmm. This, yes. This is getting, this is fresh stuff. This is fresh stuff. Richard Baucom, a uh, biblical scholar several years ago, it really impacted a lot of people, wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he said, we can't underestimate the fact that the witnesses are passing along this testimony of what's going on in Scripture. And his point many times is, you see so-and-so's name, and you think, oh, they just mentioned this random person. And Baucom is saying, no, they're seeing that person because either that person's still alive or someone knows that person, and they can go ask them, hey, did you, you were mentioned, is this, you know, this is getting passed along in the oral tradition or the written tradition of scripture. Did, were you familiar with that? And it goes to this too, hey, some of these guys are still around. Is that the same person as Bodhi Bauckham? Or are they no, okay, so no, different. Bodhi Bauckham believes the same thing, and he talks about his big, thing called why I choose to believe the Bible. He goes all about these eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. And then also about all these people that want to say that the Bible has been like changed and modified. And he talks about how difficult that would actually be to do over the course of the amount of time. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's why... Keller too. Yeah, Keller too. And that's why, and I was thinking about this, Frank, 25 years ago, there was a lot of pushback on, oh, they're late dates and late... 
I don't hear that anymore. I think everybody, and even if you, anybody's familiar with Bart Ehrman, who's an atheist, and he even can see, yeah, a lot of this stuff's really early. I mean, it's, and that's why I'm pointing out the dates on this. This is happening early in, in the passage of time. I mean, these people are still alive. This stuff is fresh. It didn't just, you know, someone came up with it out of nowhere later. This is already being in, in development. Mm -hmm. So um, let me jump to 2 Timothy 2.8. I don't know if that's on your sheets or not. But we, we started 2 Timothy within the last year or two here. Yeah, a um, couple months ago. Again, Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Again, that's almost a summary of 1 Corinthians 15. That's like Jesus, uh, the resurrection, and David, the Old Testament stuff. Remember that? We're good. Of course, the David part is, you got to remember, there's a royalty aspect to Jesus that's very key, again, 21st century Americans, we don't fully appreciate that. First century Jews, wow. They're connecting him to the king, the most famous king. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate king. So that was 2 Timothy 2.8? 2 Timothy 2.8. Yes, 2 Timothy 2.8. There's where, again, Paul is really condensing his gospel. And sometimes we talk about what is the gospel? We really, well, it's really about Jesus that he was raised and he's descended from David or the importance of the Old Testament scripture being fulfilled and that backstory. Um, a lot of doctrine comes from that and we'll talk about some of that, obviously. You know, that we're sinners and the virgin birth, a lot of key essentials. But if you want a summary of what the gospel is, that, that's it. It's, it's really about Jesus. Um, there's another creedal statement. I won't read the whole thing because it's lengthy, but it's, for, it's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And it talks about, that's the one where the Son is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, so on and so on. Um, that's the pre-creedal statement. Another one, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. But there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Um, another one, 1 Timothy 3.16. I'm just throwing out some of these. And that's why I didn't want to put all these on your sheet because they would just bottle up. Another famous one you may be familiar with is Philippians 2. Um, had the same mindset as Jesus Christ who being the very nature of God did not consider, you know, are you familiar, if you're familiar with that one, that actually many think is a hymn. It was a, was a hymn, originally written as a hymn. Um, some scholars don't think so, many do. Uh, many think it was just a creedal statement. Like, but that's another one. Um, and that's a powerful one about the deity of Christ, right there. And we'll probably touch back on that um, eventually. Um, Okay. The heresies begin, okay? We have scripture early. The heresies begin. I, a little quote here. The Ebionites, who were a sect, claimed that an angel or a heavenly Christ figure entered into the body of the man Jesus at his baptism. The Docetists denied that Jesus had a physical body. 
The Gnostics, on the other hand, claim that the wicked demigod created the world, and Jesus came to save us from this God by releasing our souls from our bodies with a secret knowledge about our primeval origins. In each of these heresies, there's a vastly different ideas about God, God's relation to creation, the identity of Jesus, the meaning of salvation, and the hope for the future. So many of these, and I heard this is years ago, I can't remember who said it, but it says, heresies always begin with who is Jesus? They always had a struggle with that, so they had to say, he appeared as a man, but he really wasn't. Or he wasn't really God, he was just a man that God entered briefly. Or they're always trying to come up a way to rationalize through what, but unfortunately for them, Scripture and the teaching of the apostles as it's passed along, saying, no, that's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. Famous early one was the Marcionites. Um, I believe he was a shipbuilder, if I remember correctly. And he had a real hard time with this whole Old Testament, New Testament God, that kind of thing. Um, so he, in the second century, wanted to play off the God of creation against the God of redemption. Um, it looked as if Jesus had come to save people from the God of the Old Testament, is what Marcion tried to do. Um, he, he took out the Old Testament he took out Jewish sections of the New Testament, and essentially he was left with some of Luke and some of Paul's writings. If you're familiar with Thomas Jefferson, what he did in his Bible, you know, took out sections of he didn't like. Marcin did it to even a wilder extreme. So, um, but this question, of who is Jesus, is key. And um, off um, John Piper's site, it says, the truth is Jesus' humanity is just as important to hold as the truth of his deity. The Apostle John teaches how denying that Jesus is a man is of the spirit of the Antichrist. Jesus's humanity is displayed in the fact that he was born as a baby from a human mother, that he became weary, thirsty, hungry, and that he experienced the full range of human emotions such as to marvel and sorrow. He lived on earth just as we do. It's a great way to look at it. And we're going to study some of these passages, especially as it goes to these creeds. Um, now I'm going to get to a section here. Does anybody have anything to say? Because this is going to be the most technical section of it, but it's really important. So I don't want you all to get glossy-eyed and, I don't know, you're really, but it's I want to go through this, and it'll be the worst part of this class as far as technical speak. So, um, but does anybody have anything to say up to this point? Any thoughts? Traditions being passed along. The Bible's being written. Paul's writing this stuff. Um, and we'll go more into this, especially in, in a little bit. The gospel writers, remember, Paul's writing first, his letters. Mark probably, they think Mark came along next, and then Matthew and Luke, and then John probably wrote last. Um, so they're writing this stuff. They're talking to people, as we, we see here. You know, Paul's getting his tradition from someone. He's getting it probably from the apostles or close disciples. Um, maybe people like Barnabas, that kind of thing. Um, but so the Bible's being written out. He's writing the letters now. Churches are being established. So Paul's writing his letters to them. Um, Luke has somebody he's trying to talk to. So he writes Luke and Acts. Um, Matthew has Jewish believers in mind, so he writes a very Jewish flavor. 
in his writings. You know, Luke's kind of more of his doctor approach. He's a doctor, so he's kind of like more, more this is the base, but he has a twist to it, but he's, he's writing, you know, this kind of more of investigation history type. Matthew's writing very much as the Jewish prophets say, as the Jewish prophets say, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Mark is, let's get this book done as fast as we can and get to the, get to the, get to, get to the crucifixion. And that's, he's like in a race. If you read Mark, it's boom, boom, boom. And this, it's like a superhero movie. It's boom, boom, boom. And we're flying through there. So each, but they're writing their letters at the same time as this is going on. These creedal statements are being on, the traditions being passed along. They're writing letters, they're sharing their thoughts, especially those apostles or those close to the apostles. Um, you know, Mark was a, got kicked off the team with Paul, but later found himself on the team with Peter. So, you know, they're, he's writing that. Luke's close to Paul. Of course, Matthew and, and um, John are, are tight So with Jesus. So they're writing these thoughts out and putting them down. So the Bible's being developed. The tradition, the creedal statements are being developed. And the apostles are passing this along. Um, I love one scholar put it, his name was Scott McKnight, which I quoted earlier. He said, for us, for those in traditions that come from, that believe in apostolic succession, um, like the Anglican Church, um, the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodoxy, some Lutheran churches, um, even some Methodist churches. Um, but Scott McKnight says, you know, really, the New Testament is the apostolic succession. It's our the apostles' thoughts put together. But then how do you interpret, how do you put that together? And that's what the next generations of who those apostles and disciples are teaching are gonna start telling us how to do it. And that's where the creeds come in. They're gonna be our interpretive lens of how to appreciate that. So, Larry Hurtado, this will get technical, he's a historian, great historian. Um, unfortunately just diagnosed with cancer recently. Um, keep in mind as he's writing here, Shema in the back of your mind as he's writing here. And I'm going to kind of, it's a lot of writing, but I'm going to try to condense it here. The earliest Christian religious discourse and practice reflect the exclusivist stance of ancient Jewish monotheism, rejecting the worship of many deities of the first century religious setting in favor of the one deity of biblical tradition. And then he talks about um, Paul's letter to the, uh, the Thessalonians, which is again a very early letter, maybe Paul's earliest. And he, Paul writes, they turned to God from the idols to serve a true and living God and to await his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the coming wrath. Um, that's First Thessalonians. Hurtado goes on to say, the disdain for these pagan deities and the worship of them is evident in the statement. So this is really early. Paul's saying there's, there's one God. He's, he's hanging on that. Monotheism, Shema's in the background. Keep in mind, again, they keep saying that. Okay? It's a true and living God. Um, Jesus is to feature crucially in his faith and in a manner for which we have no analogy in, tradish, in Jewish traditions of the time. Okay? So Paul's thinking, so this is new. What do you do with this guy? Um, indeed, we see the striking and unique duality of what we might call 
a dyadic pattern involving God and Jesus already from the opening words of the epistle, where Paul refers to the Thessalonian church as in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying there's this pattern of God and Jesus. And if you start thinking about, if you read the New Testament, you start seeing this a lot. Oh yeah, grace from the Lord God our Father and his son Jesus Christ. And this pattern of keeping putting them together. The religious position of these believers now identified with reference to both God and Jesus. As a furthermore extended illustration, note the prayer in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul appeals both to God and Jesus to enable a reunion with his addressees. And then it specifically invokes the Lord, who must have been Jesus here, to cause them to flourish in love and holiness. So all of a sudden, Jesus is given this role. Again, this is really early. Um, Paul goes on to say the believers for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul exhorts his readers to give thanks in everything for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Paul's most extended discussion of the religious stance of Christian believers in the larger Roman religious environment is in 1 Corinthians. Same idea. But, and he writes, for us, but for us there is one God the Father from whom all, there are all things and we for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through him all things, and we are through him. Again, this, this putting him put together. This is early. Shema's in the background. One God. They worship one God. What do you do with who do you say I am? So this is, Hurtado's very, history. he's trying not to read too much into, he almost, Richard Balkum, who I mentioned earlier, he would say, they know Jesus is God. They all get it. Hurtado saying maybe, but I'm going to say at the very least, they're trying to work this out because it's they have a situation on their hand. Jesus deserves this status. How do they do this with the one God of the Shema? And matter of fact, he goes on to say, it is widely but not universally recognized that Paul's statement here draws upon and adapts the traditional Jewish confession of God's uniqueness, the Shema. Paul includes the affirmation of Jesus' unique and universal role as an equally central component. It's huge. That's huge. Remember, Paul is a Pharisee. Paul's a Pharisee. And he's saying, no, I believe the Shema. I, I'm totally on board with it. We have a new understanding of God is what's coming about. And this is early. This is very early. Over 30, and this, her title refers to Richard Balcom here. Over 30 years ago, Richard Balcom drew attention to the noteworthy way that the author of Revelation both strongly affirms an exclusive worship stance and yet also approves of Jesus being a co-recipient of worship with the one God. So in Revelation... We're getting this. Jesus is to be worshipped along with the one God. But they, they're not saying they're two gods. These are Jewish who still hold to the Shema. There's, there's one God. We're understanding him better. Um, the most striking feature of the New Testament references to the Spirit of God is the repeated connection made with Jesus. There's no certainly, there, excuse me, there is certainly no similar linkage of the divine spirit with any other figure other than God in the biblical and Jewish tradition of the time. 
This linkage includes such statements as Paul's declaration that the Spirit prompts the confession, Jesus is Lord. Where Paul seems to make this confession a distinction between God's Spirit and the spiritual forces connected to idols. Likewise, 1 John makes it even more explicit. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So he goes on to talk about where we have this two-person dyadic shape, two-person, God the Father, Son Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus Christ, however you want to say it. There's also start to be this triadic thing where now the spirit also gets um, included. The great, um, second, end of Second Corinthians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. There it is again. And you see it. Perhaps the most famous one is Matthew 28, the Great Commission. You know, go make disciples and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy. That's a linking. That's not just a random thing. That's a huge statement for Jews to be writing. And that's what Hurtado is saying. This is huge. This is huge. Um, trying to make this short. I'll finish it off with this. Hurtado says, it is clear that the theological developments that led to the doctrine of the Trinity were to some significant degree prompted and even made unavoidable by the dyadic devotional pattern and triadic shape of discourse about God that we see amply attested in New Testament texts. That is, the New Testament writings vigorously affirm the one God stance that we talked about from the Jewish matrix of the earliest Christian faith, but also affirm especially the non-negotiable significance of Jesus in belief in devotional practice. Like devotional practice is key. You know, you're gonna, who does God, how many things does God in the Old Testament want us to worship? One, just him. Jesus gets that too. They say, yeah, Jesus is good too. And further, frequently refers to the divine spirit as the mode or agency which, by which God and Jesus are made present and real to believers. So the question of how to harmonize these affirmations, particularly how to posit one God genuinely, and all, yet also recognize that Jesus, as somehow really sharing in divine glory, could not be avoided by Christians in the second and third centuries. Hence, we get this development going. Now, is that me? Go ahead. Is he saying that the apostles and the people around Paul's time were trying to work through the the newness of the revelation, or that the early church fathers in the second and third century were trying to work through that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we, I would say, I think he would say, now again, Balkum and others, um, like Michael Bird would say this too. He would say, they would say, no, they get it. They're saying it. They are saying it right here. Right. Jesus is God. Hurtado, he tries to be a real overly cautious historian. He tries, Balkum's a historian too. Bird's a historian. All three of them are also New Testament experts. Hurtado's trying to really not, he wants to go, I, I'm showing you almost the worst case scenario with Hurtado. He's saying, even if they're not fully saying it, don't think they're saying it, 
they can't, they're not going to be able to avoid it because that's what Scripture is teaching. It's headed in that direction. Balkum and Bird and others would say, no, it's in there. Um, and we'll, we'll get to some of this, and we're especially going to get to it in a week or two of the deity of Jesus and the deity of, of the Spirit, especially as we dive into the Nicene Creed, um, as we get into those, because those really, really flesh it out. Hurtado is saying it's unavoidable. I think the Jewish people would really say, there's a great book, Richard Hayes. He's a scholar at Duke. He wrote a book called Reading Backwards. And his thing is, see Jesus in the Old Testament. You read it backwards. And it's really cool. And, he's, and he points out how the gospel writer, his focus is just on the gospels, not even Paul, just the gospels how they're throwing it in your face, Jesus is God, all over the place. And stories of when Jesus is walking on the water, well, that's referring back to some Old Testament prophecies about God controlling the waves and sea. It's, it's kind of in your face. And there, his point is, and Bird and, and others will say, yeah, the Jewish readers will get this. They get what, again, that goes back to, as 21st century Americans, it's not spelled out how we want, necessarily want it to. Although we will study some passages where it's pretty clearly spelled out. When Jesus says, I am, it's pretty clear. You know, we, we get it. Um, second, the Philippians chapter 2, that's pretty clear. Uh, a lot of these are very clear of Jesus' deity, for example, uh, and the Trinity. But some of the Jewish references, it's in your face. Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount and giving the law on the Mount the Jewish readers have said, oh, wow. You know, Moses got his blood of him by God the Father on the mount. You know, it's, it's in your face. All this stuff is in your face. And there's so many allusions to this that you kind of like, I miss that. And, and this book, and Richard Hayes really draws them out and says, you yeah, know, this is, the Jews would have said, oh, he, they're saying Jesus is God. It's a Jewish way, a first century Jewish way of saying, no, he's deity. Does Hayes mention in that book the idea of Moses and the burning bush, and it's actually Moses talking to Jesus? The, uh, a Christophany? Um, I don't recall if he does. Okay. I did think in the sermon, though, yesterday, I told him, Sam, after I said, you know what's so cool about that? Again, what happens there? Jesus says, you're on, God says, you're on holy ground. He appears to a shepherd, you know, and, and come worship me, but stay back. The incarnation comes along. Who do the angels go to? They go to the shepherds say, come worship him. This time, because of the incarnation, he's allowed, they're allowed to come up to him and, and connect with him. I mean, so, so subtle, I, I would say that's my own look at that, but that's the idea of, it's probably not a coincidence. We're going to talk about more coincidences of, which is the virgin birth, you know, the, the pregnancies, you know, uh, one scholar says, you know, if you get, even Anson mentioned one the other day. Oh, the fire. He mentioned the fire one. That's a great one. There's a great one on deity. I, I, I thought that one is on the deity. Fire. He talks about the fire, God's fire, God's fire, God's fire. Well, how does God appear in Acts, in Pentecost? Came down as? Tons of fire. Tons of fire. There's the Holy Spirit. See, in Jewish readers would say, whoa, whoa, is the Holy Spirit God too? 
Because he's fire too, just like that. That's what God does. Is that, every yeah. Star in this, yeah. This and you get these, these connections. These, and I like how Anson said it, and, and I, the scholar up at Gordon Conwell says it this way. You get these signposts, these banners, something's coming. Something, so you hear the fire, you know, something's coming. This is big. The virgin birth will get to that. You know, there's a pregnant young woman. Pregnancy, Old Testament. Pregnancy is big in the Old Testament. When they're talking about a pregnancy in the Old Testament, something's coming. You know, it's going to be Abraham and Sarah, or it's going to be Rebecca, or it's going to be Hannah. But whatever comes next is big. And, you know, you get these road signs of the Old Testament. That's why, according to the scriptures, and don't, don't miss that. You know, Anson talked about yes. Don't drop out of the Old Testament. It's God. It's so rich. And it helps us understand the New Testament all that much better. But so this idea of either it's unavoidable or it's spelled out, the Trinity's coming. The deity of Christ is there. They're, 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 you know, they can't avoid it. As her title says, or as others would say, no, they're, they're saying it. They're spelling it out right there. You know, the Great Commission is saying it. You know, we don't worship three gods and we're assigning things. And that's many times the, the Jewish connection in the, Old, in the New Testament, the Gospels is these things that Jesus is doing, that's what God does in the Old Testament. Those are specifically miracle type things that God would do. So they're assigning saying, oh. And if you don't think the, you know, I love the one of where Jesus says, um, before Abraham was, I am. He says it in John. Uh, which is a clear, I mean, that's, in your, that's one of those in your face. I'm God. Because what did he say at the burning bush? I am. And to say that they didn't get it, well, they sure got it. Because if you read the next line is, the Pharisees were furious that he said it, and they tried to kill him. <laughs> they, they got it. They, he was equating himself to God. And they got it. They were so mad about it. They went after him, or tried. Um, so anyway, so we'll, does that help? Does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah, I'm just curious about why he would be historically conscious then. Hurtado's that so way. Hurtado's that way. Sure. He's that way. But my point with, with him is, even at the most cautious scholar like this, who is an expert in this, he's saying, you know, spelling out, it's there. It may, t- it may have taken a little while for some to have the light bulbs. I personally take more of the belief that some got it right away. Some may made the bulb was not clicking. As some say, you know, they weren't necessarily asking the questions we ask. Now, I don't know if I fully get that because they had to worship one God. What do they do with Jesus? And then what did they do with the Holy Spirit? But it's all there early. You know, within these generations, you know, Matthew's written. The Great Commission's written out. Um, you know, Philippians is written, you know, they, it's there, and the tradition's being passed along. Um, okay, we're going to get this last part real fast here, but they're very important before we get to the creeds. Um, the rule of faith comes along. What the rule of faith was, um, some of the early church fathers were putting together these statements of what the faith really was about. They were having to pass along the tradition, and they were dealing with some of these heresies. Um, Irenaeus is one of the more famous early church fathers. And he says, um, this is what the church believes. In one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them, 
and the one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God and the advents, and the birth from the virgin, and the passion, and the resurrection of the dead, and the ascension into heaven in the flesh of the beloved Jesus Christ our Lord, and his future manifestation from heaven in the glory of God the Father, oh, excuse me, in the glory of the Father, to gather all things in one, and to raise up anew all flesh of the whole human race, in order that, that excuse me, in order that to Christ Jesus our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee, okay, here's key. This is 180 AD, okay, this is early, early tradition here. Every knee should bow of the things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess to him. Okay, that's, that's clearly, you know, we gotta worship Jesus, and that's early. Um, this is being passed along, Tertullian, same thing. And because of time, I won't go through all of it, but I think it's on your sheets, the Tertullian one. Mm -hmm. um, same thing, he's saying very similar to what Irenaeus is saying. So that, now, these aren't necessarily creedal statements, but they are written out in more sentence form of what the faith is. And it's gonna be very, this is gonna come into play, what we've just studied, the pre-creedal pre things in scripture, combined with these, we're gonna to start to see the development of these creeds. Ignatius, another early one, he's 107 AD. Um, Stop your ears therefore, and anyone speaks to you at variance with Jesus Christ, who descended from David, was also from Mary, who was truly born, did eat and drink, Clearly, when they get to that specific, they're dealing against the people who think he didn't come in human form. He wasn't really human. Um, or the Gnostics who don't like material things. They don't like humanity. They think we should just be spirits that should escape. And he say, no, he, he did all these things. He was truly, tr truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate. He was truly crucified and truly died. Okay, this is very creedal. You'll, you'll see this in the creeds of those familiar with the creeds in the sight of the beings in the heaven and on earth and under the earth. He was also truly raised from the dead, his father quickening him, quickening him. And even after the same manner, his father will also raise up us who believe in him by Jesus Christ, apart from whom we do not possess true life. Ignatius early, he learned from Polycarp, who learned from John. So Ignatius is getting it pretty directly. And I think Irenaeus also may have known Polycarp as well. Polycarp studied under, now some think it may have been a disciple John that was also a follower of Jesus. Most think it was the apostle John. But these guys know, know Polycarp. Polycarp clearly is passing along this information and I'm sure they're getting it from other sources too. But this is the faith that's being passed along that John wanted passed along. What does he mean when he's saying his father quickening Raising him up. Yeah, that's old. That's old talk. I think it's in the Nicene Creed. Yes, it is. It is. Yes. Yeah. Depending, yes, the quick of the, yes. And we'll talk about that. And there are different translations of the creeds and slight word differences, some, you know, like there are of Scripture for better understanding so some someone now say take out the quickening and some you know change that wording to last thing I want to talk about then on the historical part is the baptismal formulation this was also very early one seven um, around 200 AD and when 
you've seen it here if you the baptism two weeks ago the parents I don't know if anybody's been baptized here or if you've done baptizing here usually ask them some questions here we have AD 200 the questions that were being asked and he says do you believe in God the Father Almighty and the one being baptized shall answer I believe and then you should baptize them once laying hand on each of his heads and then say do you believe in Jesus Christ the Son of God who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and rose on the third day. Again, we'll see this in the creed. It's very creedal. On the third day, living from the dead and ascended into heaven and sat down in the right hand of the Father, the one coming to judge the living and the dead. And when they ask, I believe. And they should baptize a second time. And then he should ask, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And, at, and each being baptized shall answer, I believe. Again, this is early. Notice the three, the triadic statements here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the church and the resurrection fall under the Holy Spirit because that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's the one raising. The Holy Spirit's the one empowering the church. But it's that, that three-step thing. It's there early. They're getting it. The Trinity's being specified there. Um, we will talk more about the Trinity next week, and then we'll, we'll dive into the creeds. But that should wrap it up. I'll let you all get home and get some sleep. So any questions? Nothing? Yeah, I, I, um, when I think about the writers, you know, the scripture were divinely inspired. Right. So, you know, you have confidence in that. But then you think about, okay, what happened after they died? You know, what happened next? Right. So then you have the early church fathers who, you know, you can be filled with the Spirit, but that's not the same thing as divine inspiration. Right. So now you have them weighing these things. Right. And at the same time, I think you probably, you know, Satan is working to assault. Yes. And so if we can have division and misinterpretation and, and man is fallible, so we right. don't always get it right. Right. It's interesting to take. I mean, I have such confidence in what God has divinely inspired, but then, you know, what happened after it? That's right. This, you know, right. We get to where we are today. Right, and that's why the tradition, they're, they're passing, that's why I want to bring up Polycarp and Ignatius and um, these early traditions. The, it kind of goes back to the eyewitnesses issue. They're there, they're, they're, as the things are being written, these things are also being passed along verbally. Clearly, because Paul's writing, hey, as I, as I was given, or he's writing Timothy, as you were taught, as I was taught. You know, this is being not just in Scripture. They're also talking about it and being passed along in this tradition. The easiest way for them to do it is in these creedal statements that they're, they're putting together. And then, as you say, the next generations are coming along. These guys are dying off. The final letters are being written for Scripture and that kind of thing, and they're processing that's a whole nother thing of, okay, what's scripture, what isn't, what qualifies, and a lot of it is the connection to the apostles. That was one of the criteria. How much did this writer, was he an apostle, or was he really close to an apostle that we can trust what was being passed along there? Because again, these guys are being trusted, and people like Ignatius and Polycarp are saying, well, I knew him. Or in Ignatius' part, I knew Polycarp who knew him. And other ones are saying, you know, 
this is the tradition that's passed along from the source, from the sources. And these, you know, they're not going to spell out everything they can, but they're going to say this is the core. This is the core that they taught us, and they want to make sure we passed along. So it's, yes, but it's got to be relied on, depending on scripture, it's got to be, keep pointing back to that. So. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to, you could literally take, like, a section of scripture and cite, like, everything in each of the creeds. And like that's where they come directly from it. So. And we're actually going to do that starting next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly what we're going to start doing. So we're going to write down the Apostles' Creed next week. We're doing exactly that. So, good stuff. Thank you all. Thank you.